The disillusion of the Lucy Calkins reading and writing project sent a shockwave through the literacy world. With one of the most prestigious proponents of whole language literacy taking a step back, does that mean that the science of reading is officially the top pedagogy when it comes to early literacy? Today on Lessons Learned, we're diving deep into a topic that's seemingly everywhere you look these days, the reading wars. Our host today, Matt Kennard, Better Lessons CEO and fierce advocate for equity in education, will be joined by guests Jenna Keeney, Better Lessons Senior Vice President of Professional Learning and former ELA educator, and Elena McKell, Better Lessons Learning Architect for ELA and former educator, and also our resident science of reading expert. Stay tuned because the conversation on literacy education starts now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lessons Learned, Better Lessons, newest podcast, an opportunity for us to talk about some of the hot topics in the education world. Uh, there is no bigger topic out there today than the dissolution of Lucy Calkins' reading and writing project. Uh, we really want to dive in and talk about the decline of balanced literacy, the legislative changes that have happened in 42 states around the country, the move to a more systemic uh, science of reading approach for our newest readers, and really talk about not only how we got here, but how are we going to productively move our industry forward in a way that feels research-based, that feels supportive for teachers and administrators, and most importantly, leads to the best results for our learners. Would love to hear a little bit around the, the background of the Reading and Writing Project and, and maybe some of the reasons that this has come to light as an area where we wanna see a shift. Absolutely. The Reading and Writing Project came from an attempt to have a compromise between the people on the side of science-based reading. At the time it wasn't called science-based, but structured phonics, um, there was a there was research to support it. There were there was a population of people that were pushing for it, but then there was also still a population that was very much holding on to whole language, and so there became this attempt to have a compromise, and that is how balanced literacy came about. The attempt to compromise these two sides um, of the argument, and so the reading and writing project is based off of that compromise. It's this approach to reading instruction where there was a little bit of phonics instruction added into it, but it was more so um, incidental when it came up based on the book that you were reading, or maybe there was a mini lesson provided based off what you were seeing your students needed, but it wasn't systematic. It didn't follow a scope and sequence. It wasn't, you know, daily dedicated time to helping students understand the alphabetic code. And so it was this attempt to balance um, the asks of everyone. And that is how balanced literacy was born. No. Balance is often hard, right? Because you don't get the best of any approach. You end up uh, sometimes mired in a tough compromise. And we've seen this move to legislate. I mean, all, all the way up through a legislature, we have 42 states. We can get 42 states to agree on anything today. And we have 42 states that have agreed legislatively that it's really important that we go back to a research-based science of reading approach can you talk a little bit about why such a sudden and swift movement? Uh, you know, science of reading has been coming up for quite some time, but it seems like we've really hit a wall uh, this year that has, has pushed folks to say we actually have to make this shift right now. And so maybe if you talk a little bit about what that approach is and, and what wall this helps us get over. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's very interesting, right, to learn and know that this is decades old research around the way that a human learns to read, right? And it's a very complicated process in the brain that involves many different systems. But if you boil it down into the simplest form, it's really language comprehension plus word recognition builds a skilled reader. And I think there are many things that go into doing that. Um, but I think what is happening to build on what Elena was sharing was that whole language was a movement around saying, let's bring some joy into reading. Let's put really wonderful, rich texts in front of students. Let's give them a lot of choice and voice. And magically, they will learn to read. Unfortunately, that goes counter to what the research shares about the way in which students learn to read, which is that requires systematic, explicit instruction in phonics um, that is research-based. And so the way in which students are interacting with letters and sounds need to be taught in a systematic way and taught explicitly. I think one of the things we saw with whole language and um, balanced literacy was an attempt to cue students when they were coming to an unknown word to cue them in a multiple ways. Um, some of those most popular ways were having students look at pictures, having students read around the word. So reading the other words in the text and really based on context clues, kind of guess what that word was. But the last cueing system that is used in a balanced literacy or whole language approach is to have students actually look at the letter sounds. And that is really the only way that a student should be cued to read because that is the way in which students learn to read um, with their brain is by making that connection between what is the letter and what is the sound that it makes. And so unintentionally, we are confusing students when we're teaching them multiple ways to read a word. And we are also um, creating inequitable learning environments when we are assuming that all students have the same background knowledge to decode a word based on what a picture is or based on the context clues of a text. And so equitable instruction is really around making sure that all students have opportunities to learn to read in the way that we know is best based on the research. That equity point is a really important one because we know that we can leave folks behind in something as fundamental as reading, you know, one of the things that folks who are proponents of balanced literacy may say is it is an opportunity to try and unlock some joy in reading. Giving more choice and voice to your readers um, helps them find areas of interest to help spur the learning. And the science of reading approach uh, may not do that. Any reactions from the two of you to that? And I think more importantly, are there ways that we can still bring that joy of reading if that is a, a key critique of the, the science of reading approach? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes people think the approach will, will suck the joy out, right? It will take away the fun. But we are giving them a key to unlock a code that they otherwise didn't have. You're giving them the skill set for them to be able to read, read a book of their interest, read a book to gain knowledge. And so my pushback to that is that we are still handing them joy because we're giving them the skills that they need in order to engage in reading. You know, English is an alphabetic language. Our brains are not naturally wired to read and write. And so in order to support students with being able to read, they have to understand that alphabetic code. They have to understand the alphabetic principle that English is based on. 
But that's one component, right? We still teach vocabulary. We still teach fluency. We still want them engaged in complex and authentic texts. We still want them, you know, listening to and reading high volumes of text. I think that's a misnomer thinking that the joy is taken out. Yeah, I'll just build on that and say to to the two of you, I usually say this pretty bluntly, but um, so I'll say it here bluntly, but not critically. You know, what's joyful for a student is actually knowing how to read. And so um, I think if we're we're not starting with that foundational block, Elena, as you said, and really supporting students to know how to read, we can't get to that part of really supporting students to be lifelong learners. Um, and I think, Matt, one of the questions you asked, why all of a sudden this shift and change? And I think it has a lot to do with uh, data uh, and where our data sits as, an, as a nation in terms of how students are um, able to read by fourth grade. Um, and then really thinking about um, what the pandemic did in terms of learning loss and how it brought front and center uh, for us to really be thinking about how are we teaching um, in the best possible way to advance students and, and close some gaps and accelerate growth and learning. And so um, I think what is joyful in a classroom is that students are able to engage in the learning of the classroom um, and be able to uh, read. So I, I think that that um, that's like just a key piece to underscore here. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that idea of helping students with that foundational skill and coupling it with the fact that the last three years have been an unprecedented challenge for administrators, students, parents, families across the board with some of those foundational skills. You know, we have the privilege of being in a number of district offices, classrooms, speaking to instructional leaders, classroom teachers, principals, superintendents. And one of the things that I would say we can definitely summarize out of all of those conversations is a desperate desire to help make sure that students have the tools they need to be successful humans. And reading is such a fundamental foundational skill of all learning and really of, of all life in American society or society generally, that building that foundational skill is so important. I think one of the things that's hard is we have 42 states who've now pushed through legislation and as great as that may be, pushing through legislation does not actually change the school environment day one, the district environment day one. And we now have folks in eight states who may still be in balanced literacy programs trying to figure out how do we incorporate or make ourselves more efficient. We have folks who are in 42 states where if you were in a balanced literacy program, or even in one that was really science of reading focused, how do you suggest both for the classroom teacher who's grappling with that every day and for that instructional leader, principal, AP, superintendent, cabinet member, CAO, who may be architecting a shift in a district or a classroom or school to really go about having a conversation that's non-evaluative, that's supportive, and really doesn't turn into a, a shaming game because it feels like that's something that is we're really on the precipice of falling into that trap. Mm -hmm. Start with you, Elena. It's a great question, Matt. I'm kind of getting tired personally of like the reading wars conversation, even that language, because for two reasons. One, it distracts. I think it distracts from what we need to be focused on, which is our our kids, our students, right? And providing them the best instruction that we can to help them read proficiently. And so children need to be at the center of the conversation. And when we talk about, you know, the reading war, we're focusing more, I think, on the adults 
And we're also requiring people to take a side. And so when we're focusing on adults, you make people choose a side. And so in that, teachers have been looked at as a public enemy number one sometimes. It's like it's their fault that we are in this situation, that it's their fault that our nation's statistics are the way they are, but, you know, two thirds of our students not reading proficiently. And I think that's part of the problem. I, I was a teacher that was reared on balanced literacy. Like I believed it, but it wasn't until I went through some science of reading training that really taught me specifically about the brain, about the processes in the brain that need to work together. And it was in that moment where I was like, oh, there's so much that I did not know, so much that I believed to be true and already thought was science-based. Turns out that it wasn't. And so I think we have to approach our teachers with some empathy because a lot of them are in that position. And when you've been doing something one way for a long time, that becomes a habit. Like it's like second nature. It's just what you do. It's natural. It's part of your flow. And so there needs to be some empathy there. Well, I think I think that's that that makes a ton of sense. You know, Jenna, as you think about framing this conversation at the teacher level, at the coach level, at the administrator level, what is your recommendation for folks who want to think about that productive conversation either where they are thinking about changing a program that that's in existence um, because they have to, or if they're in a place where they don't have to, but they really want to start incorporating some of these other elements from the science of reading into their programs, wh where would you start? How would you make that a productive conversation? There are a few things uh, that Elena uh, shared that I just want to underscore. Most uh, higher ed programs for education, if not all, um, support teachers to learn to teach reading through whole language or balanced literacy. And so um, when we think about um, why teachers may be attached to teaching balanced literacy or whole language, right, it comes from the way in which they were taught to teach uh, reading, also from the way that they potentially were taught to read, right? And so we have like this long history uh, that's really hard to to break and, and really make the, those changes, even if they are necessary. I do know from talking to teachers all across the country that when they've attended some of these required state trainings on the science of reading, it can feel very enlightening, but it also can feel very triggering. It can feel that for a long time you were not teaching reading appropriately and that can feel really hard. Um, so I just want to say like the next step from that is really to figure out what are the action steps, right? Because some of these state level trainings don't feel super practical. Um, they're really like replacing what you should have learned in higher ed, um, but they're not like, what does that mean when I get into the classroom? So what are some things you could start to do to really embrace the science of reading research, particularly as it relates to structured phonics? It's really to think about um, where are you with implementation? What is the existing phonics program? If you have one, what is it? Uh, is it research-based? Can you get on ed reports or another um, third-party uh, curriculum evaluator uh, resource and really see, is that uh, curriculum based on research and the science of reading? Is it really aligned to what students need in order to be able to learn to read? Um, and I'd start there not by saying, hey, let's buy this program and get it implemented today. It's really about giving teachers an opportunity to look at it against what they're currently doing and saying, what are the shifts and changes we need to make in order to implement this? I think one thing that's always really important there too 
is to maybe see if you have a few people as a district leader that are willing to pilot something. I, I want to underscore that there is urgency here, but it doesn't do us any good to buy every, every classroom a phonics program that isn't going to get implemented. And so we really need to think about who are our teacher leaders, who are our teacher champions um, that can really try and pilot something. I think that's the beauty of uh, open educational resources that are freely accessible and available to download and really get people to see what that teaching and learning looks like. One last thing I'll add there is often when we're working with teachers through this shift and change, they're so used to teaching reading in a different way that their indicators for success are based on the way they used to teach reading. So we really need data to say whether or not students are progressing in the way that we hope them to. And we really need to be aligning that to the program in which we're teaching. We can't use old benchmarks to measure the success of students with reading. Uh, we have to use those current benchmarks to make sure that students are following that sequence of how they uh, master those letter and sound combinations. One thing I really love and what you both have talked about is the idea that this is not about pointing fingers and it's not about uh, reading wars, right? When we get into something like a reading war, uh, the victor is nobody. Because at the end of the day, the goal of education is to make sure that the victor is kids, that they have the tools that they need to be successful. Um, you know, I as, as many of you know, I come from a background that sits originally outside of the education world. I was uh, a, a finance person for a long time. And one of the things that I really appreciated in, in my professional upbringing was it is about complex change management for humans. And I think what you both also talked about is to get folks from point A to point B is A, almost never a linear progression. There are gonna be steps forward, steps back, learnings along the way. And it really requires providing robust tools and data back to those professionals who are in a classroom or running a school or sitting as an instructional coach to be able to try, measure, learn, and incrementally move a program swiftly but with the right type of research backing, the right type of change management for a school. And at Better Lesson, we really do believe that supporting educators as professionals, as we ask them to make some of these really hard pivots and shifts is important. So I love the idea that it is about administrators and classroom educators and school leaders working together to say, if we're gonna get to this point to support kids, what is a meaningful progression and how do we work with folks like PL providers and curriculum providers who have what we need to get us where we need to go with a real plan that focuses on supporting those adults who have to be in the front of a classroom and feel that accountability with the tools they need to be successful, right? No one is born knowing how to do all of this. Uh, actually, we train folks to be there. And, and I think, you know, treating teachers like professionals when we make these shifts is actually the key to getting there and giving them robust tooling. We've talked a lot about going backwards now, right? Well, these changes have been made, but do you feel a sense of hope for the future? Do you feel like as we hopefully move away from this idea of a head-to-head -head and instead think about bringing both joy and science and systemic work to this entry point into a fundamental skill, do you see a future that looks better than where we are today. 
I think one thing that makes me feel hopeful, although not um, immediately practical, is state legislation. Um, I think there are state legislation around the science of reading, as well as some states uh, have banned three-part queuing system. So I think um, those things make me feel really helpful in our changes. I feel really super excited about um, some of the open educational resources that are available, their high quality curriculum that really has the underpinning that all students have access to complex texts on a regular basis. Um, and I, I, I think that equitable opportunity for all students to be able to read, but all students to be able to read text that's worth reading is really important. So I think those two movements together um, make me feel really excited. I would that I'm cautiously optimistic. That's that's the term I want to use. Um, I, I'm optimistic about seeing the conversation that I'm hearing, the focus on the fact that we do need to do something differently, that what's, what we were doing in the past was not working. I feel like there is now this national conversation that a lot that multiple stakeholders are involved in, not just policymakers, but teachers, parents, some, you know, depending on the age, kids, like everybody is having this conversation. And so I love the attention that is being brought to it. Um, and with, with the influx of curriculum providers are having to revamp their work. We're having new curriculum um, providers come out, new authors come out with curriculum and high quality instructional materials that are based you know, in the science of reading. And so I'm optimistic about all of that. But I also know that we have like to support our teachers to make the shifts. Just giving materials is not enough. I, I've gone into many classrooms where they have the materials and they're still in the cellophane wrapping because no one supported them on how to implement it. And so the big thing there is going to be support as we're making these state mandates and, you know, these sweeping policies. Are we also thinking about the learning environment for teachers and leaders in order to lead this work. The data tells us there's a need. And so I'm glad that that we're moving in that in that um, direction. I just hope the conversations continue and that we'll continue to support teachers and leaders um, with making with making the shifts. I love that for both of you and, and the idea that we make those shifts together. We invest together around this idea that we can create a better environment for kids. And listen, it's hard, right? We've talked ad nauseum in the industry about COVID and COVID data. We often talk about the negatives, but the reality is data always gives you a real starting point. It gives you a real pathway forward. And, and instead of looking at the, the degradation, which is important, right? There's equity issues that are tied up in that. There are funding issues tied up in that, but it also gives us a real pathway to how we get to a better, more equitable system that is around making sure that every kid who walks into a classroom has access to a world-class education, right? And that's the goal of our, our public education system. That's the goal of the work that we do. And we're just so privileged as a, an organization to get to work with wonderful educators around the country who are trying to make that change. And um, we, are, we are around and available for those who want to continue that conversation. Well, Jenna, Elena, I want to say a sincere thank you for joining for episode one uh the lessons learned podcast will be a episodic thing that we do around here but we are really excited to dig into these topics if you have suggested topics or things you want to hear about please leave a comment and uh, we look forward to seeing you in the next one thanks so much
Thank you so much for listening to Lessons Learned. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, or share. And for more content created with educators in mind, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at betterlesson.com backslash the learning curve. Until next time.